everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive Podcast, where every other week we bring you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you to help you connect with where your passion meets the world's deep need. This week on the podcast, we're talking with Dr. Timothy Tennant, president of Asbury Seminary. We're talking to him about how he first discovered the quote, attempt something so big that unless God intervenes, it's bound to fail. The way he was introduced to this quote by sneaking through author Jamie Buckingham's study the night before his good friend got married. We also talk about ways he hears from God and how his spiritual gifting for building and construction translates not only to helping him build a healthy, sustainable organization at the seminary, but also to his love of woodworking. I'm just really grateful, Dr. Tennant, for your time and being on the podcast today, Um, and just really looking forward to the opportunity to have a fun conversation with you and to get to know you as a person a little bit, too, because I've known you as the president, you know, but just really, I've never really had a conversation with you before, so I'm really looking forward to that. Great. Yeah. Um, So I want to talk to you about our slogan, Attempt Something Big, because that originated with a quote of yours, Attempt Something So Big That Unless God intervenes, it's bound to fail. When were you first introduced to the quote? Right, that quote uh, came to me uh, in a very, very special way because it was, uh, the year was 19, uh, probably 80, 81, somewhere in there, and uh, 1980, I guess it was, and so I was, uh, one of my very good friends was getting married, and so I traveled down to Florida to be in his wedding. Mm -hmm. So when we got there, we were staying in the home of... um, uh, his fiance was uh, Jamie Buckingham. His fiance's husband, uh, father, Jamie Buckingham, was a well-known author, and so I was really excited about seeing his home and mm-hmm. all this. But we were getting there like at two in the morning. Yeah. So what happened was I uh, he told me to leave the back door open, and we would just go in and, so, and find our beds. My roommate and I were both going down, and so we went down there and. You know, the light was on. We went into the bedroom, but I was—I couldn't resist the fact when I got out in the hallway, like to go across the bathroom, whatever. I saw that his study was there next door. To <laughs> and so, just being a young, you know, seminary student, I was actually headed to seminary, and here's the guy who's written a lot of books and all. I just couldn't help but just go into his study, you know. So I go into his study, and I didn't even turn the light on. Oh wow! Start, but the moon was shining uh, through the window onto his typewriter. In those days, who had typewriters? Yeah. And so I walked up to his typewriter, and I was thinking, wow, you know, this is where all those books were written. And all. Mm-hmm. You know, just this thing on his line, of course, all the books on the wall and all that. And then um, there on the typewriter, I saw this little thing, a little sticker, like, mm-hmm. like something he had typed out and to, like taped onto his typewriter. Mm-hmm. And it said, attempt something so big, unless God intervenes, it's bound to fail. Wow. And so that was the actually the origin of the phrase, attempt something big, uh-huh. was on the tape to the typewriter of Jamie Buckingham. <laughs> I love that in image. Melbourne, <laughs> I love that image of you kind of stealthily <laughs> sneaking into his study. That's right. And seeing that. And I just, I never forgot it because of the experience and, that, and being there that night. And I, I always um, felt like it was so important to not limit yourself to what you felt like you could do you know, in terms of your own abilities and capacities, but to dream and let God do what only he can do. Mm-hmm. So. How did that quote influence your own calling? Well, I think it's influenced it just because um, I think it's been my journey. I give, when I went into the pastorate, I, um, 
I thought I would, I would just stay, even my very first church, my wife and I remember saying that we, you know, we would just stay here until we retired. I never really had any like ambitions to go do this or that, you know? Yeah. So what happened was, believe it or not, I've never in my life applied for a job. Really? I mean, other than maybe, maybe like I was in high school doing like summer jobs, I'm sure I put an application for them. But in terms of my, once I got married, my professional mm-hmm. life, I've never applied for a job. That's never. incredible. So... Being a professor at Gordon-Conwell, professor at Tulsa Falls College, being the president of Asbury, it all came when God intervened into my life and said, I have something you did, I don't want you to do that's different. And mm-hmm. So in that sense, the Lord keeps leading me to think differently about his calling, accept that, and uh, rest in that. And uh, I think even now, I think, wow, I, I never really thought that we would have a role. It's one thing to lead a seminary, which is an awesome, awesome opportunity, but to... Also, it's the opportunity to really bring renewal to the wider Wesleyan world. What God's mm-hmm. doing through Asbury is really mm-hmm. something big. It is. It is. God can do. So right now, how do you feel that God is maybe personally leading you to attend something big for him? Well, I think part of my job, you know, I think one of the things I learned uh, going through is that one of the most important things in life is not what you do, but what you enable others to do. Very true. And so part of my role at this stage of my life is to say, you know what, I'm going to help orchestrate a lot of events and our seminary and new room and seedbed and our church planning, a lot of things in order to unleash things that I can't really do. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't plan a thousand churches. Or Something whatever. bigger than you. Right. And so part of my role now is more of a catalyst role to try to, you know, I, I, I don't get to teach a lot of classes. I don't, I don't get a lot of time, time to write things I used to enjoy doing, uh, but now I see my role as more of uh, helping to orchestrate things mm-hmm. and helping to be, you know, behind the scenes, as it were, helping to make things work. My spiritual gift is a builder. I, that's my oh, natural yeah. gift. Mm-hmm. So I know how to analyze things, figure out what the problems are, and make things better. <laughs> and that's what I can do. <laughs> and so well, I rely on other people with other kinds of gifts, but that's... That's how, I know how to do that, so that's part of what I do at Asbury. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever envision yourself as being president of a seminary someday? Never. Never? Never. Never. So Never when, dawned on me. In fact, when I, I don't know if you know this story. In uh, probably 2006, somewhere in there, 2006, I got approached by the Lilly Foundation. They wanted to do a, uh, a special study to see if a professor could someday become a seminary president. Mm-hmm. And they said, we're going to invest some money because there have been a lot of uh, failures of presidents where things have blown up, not gone well. And uh, the kind of the high steeple church uh, pastors and brought into the seminary environment had done very poorly because mm-hmm. it's a different environment. Mm-hmm. Professors often did not do very well in this job. Mm-hmm. So that could you train a professor who knows the, like the DNA and the dynamics to actually do this kind of work? So... There are four chosen in the U.S. I was one of the ones chosen. Wow. And would I go through a three-year um, like training pro- program? So I said to them, uh, I, I, maybe I, I'm not really interested in, the, in a job like that. I, no, <laughs> I, I see no. Like, if you think this is going to lead to that, then I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. He said, no, no, we want you to go through it. Just experience the, the whole you know, training. And uh, what happens afterwards is up to you. So I agreed to it. went through three years of training. Mm-hmm. I interviewed presidents all across the country, learned a lot about the job, just yeah. kind of on the inside. And there were four of us went to the, to the program. And ironically, by halfway through, 
we were in a hotel in Chicago at one point. We're talking like, you know, over a meal or something. And, uh, and somebody said, uh, well, you know, we're halfway through the program. What do you think? And we all said, who would do this job? <laughs> You'd have to be crazy to do it because on the outside it looks differently. You think it's like cutting ribbons, like waving from balconies. Right. You realize, no, this is really a painful job. There's a lot of work like that goes into it. Yeah. challenges and people's personalities and gifts. And the whole orchestration thing is difficult. So uh, we all kind of laughed and said, this is actually, um, like, who would do the job? Mm-hmm. By the end of the third year, we're like, you know, this job is really needed. You need people to do this job. Mm-hmm. And so it was a year after I graduated from that that I came to Asbury. Uh, Asbury ha- actually never knew. One of the real s- things that surprised me is they actually never knew I went to the program. Like, wow. they just, for some reason, they just didn't put it together in my resume, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, when I told them about it, they were like, well, really? We didn't know you did that. <laughs> so it was really funny. <laughs> That but is. I did go through that program, and it was it helped prepare me a little bit. But it's every school's different, and the challenges are different, and uh, you just have to learn, you know, the job that once yeah. you get into like everything else in life, you yeah. just have to learn the job. Yeah. So how did you get to Asbury then? If you never applied for a job, how did you come to be so the president? What happened was I. Uh, Asbury was looking for a president I didn't know, and they had one search that had gone through a failed search. They'd gone through the process and said, we're not happy with the, we're going to start over again. I was actually in Scotland at that time. I was on sabbatical in Scotland doing a, writing a book. They started a new process, and um, I had gotten emails. You get emails occasionally from, from uh, people that are, that are helping to do a search for presidential searches, and so... Um, it was really interesting because there's another school. I won't name the name of the school, but another school was looking for a president. And so they had contacted me and said, um, would you be interested in this school? Mm-hmm. And so I wrote back and said, uh, no, I'm not interested at all. Mm-hmm. And so I knew where I was telling my wife, asked my wife about it and said, you know, what are you not such and such school? And she said, no, 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 that's not right. And so <laughs> he sent an email about a week later, and it was interesting. It was a three-word email. It said, how about Asbury, question mark? Oh, wow. And so I kind of, almost like half joking, I said to Julie, my wife, I said, uh, what do you think about us uh, going to Kentucky? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I guess, you know, we're living in Massachusetts. Yeah. She said, that'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> I said, wow. <laughs> and so it was just kind of interesting that she was open to the idea. And so I, uh, you know, he, I didn't respond to that email, but he later called me and I said, well, you know, I said, um, I'm really happy where I am. Um, I'm not interested in a job. And so if I got another call from a person who at that time was a consultant to Asbury. Um, and, and he, his name is Bob Cooley. So Bob Cooley called me up. Mm-hmm. We had a long history from Gordon mm-hmm. Connell years. And he said to me, uh, I'm consulting for Asbury. And I really, really think you ought to at least talk to them. Would you at least go and talk to them? Mm-hmm. And so I went and talked to them. I, I responded to that. I went and talked to them. But I wasn't really interested in the job. Yeah. And then later, after we came home, I realized they were interested in us. I finally wrote this long letter, made three-page letter, single-spaced, and I laid out all the reasons why I could not come to Asbury. Just yeah. one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> and I got involved in a lot of projects at gordon Conwell at the time. There's just no way I could leave. And so I, um, the, anyway, this consultant uh, called me one night, and he said, I got your letter. It was a really... A, Awesome letter, he said. It was great. He said, I really appreciated it. You laid out some great reasons. He said, but there's one thing you did not say. Yeah. I said, really, what's that? He said, you never said God had not called you. 
He said, if you can oh, tell wow. me right now that God has not called you to Asbury, then I will hang up and I'll never call you again. Wow. And I said, wow, I really can't say that. Because I always should be open to God's will in my life. Yeah. But I just, there's a lot of things in the roadblock that just, a lot of projects I'm involved in, I just can't. Of course, yeah. So I went down a second time and talked to him again. And it was in the second conversation where we realized uh, God was calling us to Asbury. How did you know that? Like, how did you know you were hearing from God? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it was just, um, just kind of, a, I mean, for us it comes through multiple ways, but I think it was a person inner sense inside where you just feel like the Lord is speaking to you. You know, and after mm-hmm. a number of years of walking with the Lord, you know when the Lord's trying to get your attention on things. Mm-hmm. And there are things that were said and done um, in the process where I realized uh, that they mentioned four things they were looking for. And I realized that these are things God had prepared me, you know, to do and to be that I embodied. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also, you know, just talking to my wife, talking to Julie, um, I highly value her, you know, just thoughts about things. And so we we talked about it. And she said, i never forget her language. She said, I feel like uh, this is not something that we're doing, but something which is being that's happening to us. You know, that oh. something is happening to us and we've got to. Take notice of it. Yeah, got you know, to respond to and respond to this. Yeah. And so once I realized that um, God was calling us, uh, I went to see, you know, some really key uh, friends mm-hmm. who I was really close to. Mm-hmm. One was overseas that I'm very close to. One was there at Gordon Conwell, and I just said, you know, confidentially, uh, this is what's happening. These conversations, mm-hmm. and what do you think? And they were like, this is perfect for you guys. You know, this is exactly the right step. Wow. We'll take care of everything at Gordon Campbell. Don't worry. You go. Consider that. You know, so it went on to another. And so eventually, uh, the last thing that happened, confirmation-wise, was um, I, they have a process where these things happen. It's all laid out in a document. So well, you know, step one, step two, mm-hmm. step three, eventually mm-hmm. goes to a public announcement, right? So right. this has all been agreed upon by the trustees. This is our process. So they don't like interruptions to the process. No. So I said, um, when they finally asked me, I said, um, I won't consider it unless I have a conversation confidentially in private with senior faculty. Mm-hmm. They said, well, that's not part of the process. I said, then... Um, then I'm not your guy. I'm not your guy. Yeah. And so, um, so Heidi, they, they kind of pushed back. Uh, Jen Smith said, it's not part of the process. I said, well, that, that's my terms. I, I don't want to get blindsided Right. And have the trustees think I'm the greatest appointment imaginable, and the, tru- and the faculty is saying this is not what we think is best for us. Right. So I said, I want faculty, I want senior faculty, people who've been there forever, mm-hmm. who know the school, know, mm-hmm. know. So they arranged it, and we met in Sims Conference Room, and it was really interesting because this is the funny side of the whole thing. It was a freezing day in January, <laughs> okay, absolutely blistering cold in Wilmore. I had never been to Wilmore in my life. Oh, it was wow. my first trip to Wilmore. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've never been to Wilmore in my life. I get to Wilmore. It's freezing cold. The chair of the search team says to me, I cannot be seen on campus with, with you. Because if someone sees me, they all know who I am walking with you. They'll know I'm, you must be a candidate. It's highly confidential. Right. Someone dropped you off at the subway. <laughs> and they don't subway. And they said, just walk toward that fountain. You know, like walking, you know, going into campus toward the fountain. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And somebody will meet you 
and take you to where the faculty are waiting for you. I've never been in any buildings here. I've never heard of some conference room. I knew none of that. It sounds like a secret mission, you know? Yeah. And so I walk, I'm, I'm walking from Subway. I'm walking down that, you know, that driveway there where I now drive every day. And I get to that where the fountain is, and there's Timmy Cessna. <laughs> <laughs> so Timmy Cessna says, hello, I'm here to escort you up to – so she escorted me up to Sims Conference Room. And um, I spent probably, um, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours with mm-hmm. the faculty and had a really good talk with them. Yeah. And so they later conveyed their thoughts to the board, which apparently were positive. So – that's what finally, uh, you know, punched yeah. it. And we said, okay, yeah. we'll come. Well, we're really glad that you did. Very glad that you did. So, and thank you for sharing that story, too. Yeah. That's really funny. January of 2009, that happened. Yeah. 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 So In now. In fact, the funny thing that Jim said about being seen, he said, um, when, he, when I had to walk from Subway, he said, uh, if I'm seen on campus with a spotted dog, they'll think that's the next president. So he was just determined <laughs> how to be seen publicly with me. <laughs> I love that. But I also love how you were really committed to meeting with the faculty because I think that kind of speaks to your love for building an organization and building relationships with the people who are going to be working for you. Yeah. So I know that you travel a lot. We talked a little bit about that off the podcast. Um I know that I personally get really absorbed in kind of the American version of Christianity. So, and I know that different cultures, like it's one Jesus. I'm not saying anything like that. Um, But what can Christians in America learn from Christians in other parts of the world? Yeah, I think that it's great when uh, fresh eyes read the scriptures and they come at the word of God with their own kind of different experiences in life and, and expectations, et cetera. I think that you just learn a lot. And so I think for me, it actually, uh, my interest in global Christianity was birthed out of failure. Really? I was asked uh, in the early 80s to come to India. And I'd been to India before, but I went there to actually teach in a, in a program. And I had been, you know, a pastor. I've been preaching, teaching regularly. I, I felt I was pretty, you know, reasonably good at that. I got to India, and I'm going to teach a class, and I could tell I just wasn't mm-hmm. communicating. Mm-hmm. It wasn't connecting. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because I was bringing, you know, my worldview and what I thought were like, the, you know, basically I was answering questions that they didn't have, right? And right. so then they would ask questions, and they were questions I never even thought of, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so what happened was, um, I think in some way, I, I used to always say my whole life, was in some way a response to the fact that I had gone to India and had such a, a difficult experience my first time there. Mm, how so? Because it made me ask new questions. It made me say, you know, well, why is it that the same gospel being brought to India, you can uh, have an experience where you, you could communicate it so well to an American audience but not be communicated very well in a, in a different audience? What is that? Well, it's because we are all living people with our own background and history mm-hmm. and questions and issues and and how we how culture has shaped the problems that we face and how we solve problems. And so um, I eventually did my doctoral work in uh, Christianity in India and mm-hmm. how the gospel is communicated uh, in, the, in a Hindu context, which is my main interest. Mm-hmm. And it was it just had endless uh, aha moments, you mm-hmm. know, how the gospel can be communicated better in that situation. And so it explained, you know, why... Indians asked the questions they did. Uh, you know, that, I mean, just for example, um, 
a real big burning issue in India has to do with uh, food sacrifice to idols. It's a big oh, thing. You know, should yes. you eat or not eat? Uh, you can't uh, say it's not in Scripture because Paul addresses it. Right. Corinthians eight. It was never mentioned in a class I've ever had at seminary. Right. Never. Right. And so, you know, if you say, well, you shouldn't, okay, then, again, the problem with that is that on the one hand, you know, if you say you eat food sacrifice to idols, it's like, are you participating with demons or idol worship? If you say you don't, what does this mean to the people uh, in the in the culture? Because in, in that culture, when food is sacrificed to idols, they take it from the temple because uh, idols obviously can't eat. And they take it around to their friends as an act of hospitality. Okay. So the way you would encounter food sacrifice to idol is actually not in a temple somewhere, but actually you experience it in your home. So someone mm-hmm. would knock on your door and offer you food. So you might not know where it came from. You may not know where it came from, but you generally you know that's where it came from. But if you said, um, no, I don't want the food, uh, then it, a Christian might interpret it as, well, they're just resisting idols. But on the other hand, they take it as that you don't want my friendship. Right. You know, which is a, kind of a personal Christian, offense. Yeah, personal yeah. offense. So that's just one of many, many examples. So I spent years working in India, and uh, over many years I learned a lot more of how to see uh, Christian through Indian eyes and the mm. things that they help them. Yeah. And so eventually I became very comfortable with, uh, you know, working with Indian Christians, yeah. you know, and so I eventually involved in church planning training. Uh, and also I, I spent a lot of time, I would spend most half my time I would spend in the seminary teaching. And then I would spend another maybe five or six weeks uh, visiting in the field, different church plants. Over in India. In India. It's okay. In India. So these are people that were my students, you know, mm-hmm. in the previous years are now doing church planting. Oh, wow. So, I would so you go can out see, and visit like, them yeah, the kind of the say, fruit of okay, your how's teaching. how's it going? Yeah. You know, what's working, what's not working? And then every year we would have a big seminar. We'd bring the heads that we had, like church planners, over church planners, but the people that were like the senior leaders, there were about 15 of them, we'd bring them together for just long, like, weekend conversations. Mm-hmm. Extremely enlightening. Yeah so, yeah, what so. Did, yeah, so what did you learn about God that you wouldn't have known just in America? Well, just that the Lord is the Lord of all nations, you know, and mm-hmm. the gospel is good news to everybody, you yeah. know. And I, I think in some ways you're just seeing how the gospel unfolds. Uh, I mean, one example, I was in Brazil um, this past January, and, you know, the Methodist Church is going through a lot of struggles right now, and so you go to a conference, it can be very dysfunctional, people fighting, people arguing, Okay, so I get on a plane, I go down to Brazil, and there you have these amazing meetings of Methodists. You know, they're oh, planning, yeah. church planning strategy, mm-hmm. these amazing worship services that are vibrant, you know, mm-hmm. and exciting. They're, they're, they wanted me to come and talk about the Great Commission, you know, how they yes. can meet, uh, bring more people to Christ. Uh, I was out doing, we're doing uh, into the, uh, the, in the barrios where you're bringing, we had these ministries that brought food to the inner any city, like people that were in poverty. And so we were delivering hundreds of meals. I mean, the whole thing was just showing that, wow, a church that's healthy and vibrant, what does it look like? And mm-hmm. it's actually very good because you can forget and think that the church you're in, because every church has problems, yes. including the Brazilian church. But, you know, they come here and see our strengths. We also go there and we see their, their weakness and their strengths. And so in a way, it helps you to get a better kind of view the body of Christ as a whole. And so I found, generally speaking, a lot of uh, American blind spots are actually spots where Indians are very insightful. Really? And then things that they have blind spots on, we 
our, our strengths for us. Yeah. You know, so that's that's a positive thing. So we can strengthen each other. I mean, for example, on the positive side, on the American side, I, I love America is part of global Christianity. And I think Americans have a really a great gift in organizing things. Mm. We're good organizers. Mm-hmm. And so in India, we had a huge need for translation work. So we were um, always trying to find materials in Hindi we could use that were mm-hmm. appropriate for, you know, witnessing, for children, for Sunday schools, for, you know, higher adult education, everything. And there was just very, very little available. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, for years, it bothered me that we just, we had people that were so gifted, were perfectly bilingual, uh, we even had funding available, but yeah. we just couldn't get it done. Couldn't get it done. Mm-hmm. So finally, I realized at some point, I must have been at least seven or eight years into it, I realized the problem is that there's no, no way to organize it. And I can do that. <laughs> and so I, I started an organization dedicated to translating materials in Hindi. And oh, wow. we created this huge vision map, you know, of different, uh-huh. four different levels of translation work. We had people, we, we eventually got donations. We had this like a big lab full of people working, you know, doing translation work. And one of our students here, Shivaj Mahendra, was oh, once yeah. part of that. So you can oh, ask yeah. him about it. It's, it's, he was a, one of our best translators in that work. But anyway, we started churning out all this material that's been a huge blessing to the church. Yes. I mean, hundreds of materials, I mean, things. And, and it happened because I realized, you know, the piece was that no one had really taken time to organize it and show them how they could do it. And right. But they were doing all the work. That's I was amazing. just the organizing kind of force behind all things. That's amazing. So that was very gratifying. I realized this is, I think it's a mistake for Western Christians to say uh, some version of, this is the day of global Christianity, our day is over, we have nothing to contribute. Mm. I think mm-hmm. we went through a period where, uh, maybe 19th century, where we felt like we were the only ones that were doing anything worthwhile. And people said, you know, you're like parachuting down and telling the rest of the world how to do Christianity. Well, then, which is true. But then there was a period where they grew up and matured, and then we kind of backed off like, oh, well, now this is the day for the African Christians and the Chinese right. Christians. They're, like, they're taking the world, and we're just over here surviving. But actually, we continue to have an important role to play collaboratively in the mm-hmm. global church. Mm-hmm. So that's been a big part of my life, and even work here at Asbury, trying to bring together uh, what we have and what God's done at Asbury to strengthen the church, but also validate and, and call forth and strengthen mm-hmm. the gifts and what we can learn. Right. Uh, from, uh, we had one professor who was very, very reticent about going overseas to teach, and I, I kept trying to get him to go, and he finally agreed to go, and um, but very reluctantly because he just wasn't comfortable. He was out of his comfort zone. Right. So our faculty, of course, do this all the time. And so he came back, and I said, I said, how was it? He said, I'll never teach the same again. No. Because he himself had been changed. Right. That's the power of the whole thing. It works both ways. And mm-hmm. uh, as we travel in the world, and I've been on every continent and had a lot of experience with the church around the world. And we lived in different continents as well, in Asia and Europe. In the process, we've learned a lot about the church. And that's been a very helpful coming mm-hmm. to Asbury. Because mm-hmm. I think Asbury Absolutely. has to be more and more of a globally minded situated place if we Absolutely. Yeah. How did you first get involved in your mission work in India? Because you still teach in India I on do. a regular basis, right? I do. I do. 35 years now. Um, well, it actually happened um, amazingly, again, through one of these situations where something happens a given day as a pastor where you don't think it was a big deal, but it was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, I, I was I, I was always a, a lover of world vision. Mm-hmm. So we were supporting, you know, maybe a 
child or something through World Vision, some work they were doing. And so we got the World Vision magazine. And so I was a pastor in Georgia. Uh, this is probably 1983, 84. And I got this uh, magazine, opened it up, and it told the story about this uh, employee of World Vision, Indian man who had grown up in India, who wanted to go back to India to start a school in a church planning ministry. Mm-hmm. And he was still in California trying to raise a vision. And um, my wife and I, because her great aunt had worked in India, we had a long interest in India, and I'd been there once. My wife and I both had been there in 83. And so basically um, we were praying for India, and I had really had a burden for seeing indigenous Indians mm-hmm. get raised up because I knew that the missionaries had been kicked out of India in the mm-hmm. 70s. So basically I just sat down one day I can't imagine why I even did it, but I just wrote, I wrote a letter to him, like, you know, the old-fashioned yeah. letter. And uh, dear, dear George, I uh, saw your article, really encouraged by it. I think we probably put a check for like $100 or something in, the, in there. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It was a very modest kind of thing. Well, he calls me up at some point wow. a few weeks later and said, I'm going to be in Georgia. He was traveling the country trying to raise money and vision. He said, I'd like to come out and see you. So I said, sure. You know, I'd yeah. never met him in my life. He came by my uh, house. In those days, uh, because we had one small child, I would get up really early in the morning, and uh, I'd go over to the church to pray, and then come back for breakfast. In the mm-hmm. so I'm still, uh, I'm still a big believer in early morning prayer. It's my kind of my, my that's my time. I'm yeah. not really good at night. So anyway, so I got up that morning and I said to George that night before I said I'm gonna leave the house really early. Do you want to go over and pray? And he goes, I, I do. So we got in the morning, went over to the freezing cold church. <laughs> you have a pattern then, of freezing cold. We lit this like little space heater because they didn't have like any central heating, and we sat next to the space heater. And I was this every morning. I was used to this, and I would sit huddle by the space heater and pray. Mm-hmm. So we're praying about things, and uh, again, I felt the Lord just prompt me to say something to Him. Mm. And I turned to Him in that cold church, and I said to Him, George, the Lord is prompting me to ask you. He's telling me I need I should help you. Mm-hmm. And how can I help you? Mm-hmm. And I was so sure he would say some version of, well, I need to raise money to start this school. Could yeah. you maybe find some donors or whatever, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Instead, he said, um, would you come to India and help me teach? Wow. I was like. Not what you were expecting. That was a little more no. personal. Yeah, and it more, me yeah. doing something, you know. Yeah. And so I agreed to come to India. I did. That's when I had this experience where, wow, mm-hmm. you know, it was such a challenge for me to do this mm-hmm. and to learn about this. And so. I eventually, um, I mean, not just eventually, I immediately begin to go every year to the present day. That's awesome. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of times hearing from God, and you've talked about how you hear from God. What are some ways, if you're just starting out trying to hear from God, that you can learn to hear His voice and know that you're hearing from Him? And it's not just kind of like your circumstances or you're twisting kind of what you want. Your, the direction you want your life to go, but to actually know, like, this is where God is leading, and so I know if I'm going this way, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, obviously, I think we get uh, most of our direction comes from what my wife and I call laying the tracks, which means laying the kind of daily um, practices in place mm-hmm. so that when you need to hear from God, you're okay. in a position to do that. 
So what happens if you wait until you're like, I need to find a job or I need to, you know, need to, should I marry this person or not? Whatever. It's the wrong time to go and ask because you haven't laid the tracks. It's like putting a train out on a field saying, go across the field. It won't work. Right. So in order to lay tracks, you have to create daily rhythms of being before God and spending time in his word. And so I'm a, I'm a very strong believer in the importance of that and, mm-hmm. and, and starting the day with that. And so... My wife and I have always done that our whole life and uh, whole married life together. And so we, you know, as you tend to have in prayer, the Lord will, you know, as you read, for example, you're prompted. Uh, and it's oftentimes things that you don't feel normally like you want to do. You know, mm-hmm. for example, uh, I had a situation and I know we've all had this situation, too, I'm sure, where you you had a situation at church uh, where something happened or something was said. It could be in your family where. Uh, words were spoken where, um, you know, you need, things are not right. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, just, you just know things are not right. Yeah. It doesn't mean you had a big blowout fight, but you just know that something was wrong. And, and you, yeah. the next thing you see the person, you're going to feel a little weird, right? Right. And so the Lord prompts you and says, you know, you need to get that, make that right. Yeah. All right. Now that, I used to hate that voice. What's that? I used to not yeah. hate. That's too strong a word, but I used to be like, "Oh man, you're telling me again. I've got to go." So that is a great example because you know that's from the Lord. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that's from God. Mm-hmm. So it's not like someone saying something that could be, "Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't." You know, the Lord is committed to reconciliation. Right. And so, as you practice those kind of things, uh, I remember one time I was I was in a hospital, and the Lord just I really felt the Lord tell me to go into this ICU unit uh, and go and pray with this man. I didn't mm-hmm. know who, who he was, right. but it was just a clear, you know, and I later realized after I went in there, this is an important thing to do. You know, so mm-hmm. you know, what happens over time, you develop sensitivities because you're laying the tracks for it through mm-hmm. daily life. And I'm also, to be fair, I've had many times where the Lord has prompted me to do something where I did not do it. You know, I just, I just, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, or just, yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons you rationalize. Yes. And so when that happens, you later realize, uh, generally speaking, you realize it was, really was a mistake that I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it causes more pain later. And so you learn also that that negative. So I don't want to convey the idea that I, I, God speaks to me like you and I are speaking, and I'm like, everything is... <laughs> I wish he kind of did, although I'd be a little freaked out if, you know, tomorrow morning when I wake up, I was just like, hey, Heidi, this is the path yeah. I have for you today. And we had, we've had huge times where we felt the silence of God. Uh, we've had, we have prayers that we've been earnestly praying for years. Mm-hmm. I mean years, uh, some of them over a decade, where God has not answered the prayer. We have situations where we had one situation where I felt a real call from God. I mean, it was just, to me, of all the things that the Lord spoke to me, I felt like it was so clear. I was to resign my job and go to Nigeria. Oh, wow. It was like, you're to do this. Mm -hmm. And so I had two small children. Mm -hmm. Uh, I resigned my job. I had the opportunity. Again, I didn't apply for the job, but it had come to me for this opportunity with this organization. Uh, now called Global Scholars, and uh, we went to Nigeria, and the whole thing exploded. Oh, wow. It was a disaster. I mean, it just exploded. And my wife and children were still in the U.S. They hadn't even moved over yet. I went over early, you know, to get the house ready, and it all exploded. There was a coup in the government. Oh, my goodness. It was just a disaster, and I was kicked out of the country. Yeah. And and I came back home, and it was like, what was that about? Yeah. And I, I felt so clear that God had called us yeah. there. 
But what I realized was that all the tumult that we went through, uh, God was teaching me other lessons. You know, I need to learn preparing mm-hmm. me for my future, mm-hmm. actually. And so sometimes um, the way I like to put it is that whenever, whenever you find a no in your life where God, something blows up or doesn't go right or you think it should go so-and-so, mm-hmm. that um, God's no is always his deeper yes. You know, that looking back now on that experience, uh, that's been many years ago, he was in the early 90s. Um, I now see that it was God's yes in my life, that he wanted me to go through that experience. Mm-hmm. That was part of his formation for me. Mm-hmm. I had to learn to trust him through that. And if it wasn't for that experience, I wouldn't have ended up, for example, at Tacoma Falls College, which was mm-hmm. my first teaching position. You know, yeah. things happen because yeah. of that experience. Yeah. And so I look back and say, um, you know, as horrible and painful as that was, where in the moment I felt like God's gone silent Mm-hmm. He told me to do something. I did it. I obeyed him. I remember one night being in our apartment, and I was, uh, my wife and I, we'd, we'd left. We, we had, our furniture was gone. We'd sold it and all that mm-hmm. to go there. We didn't, we'd didn't. given our pension plan. We had no support, no salary, and we were literally sitting in these, like, folding chairs in this apartment. And wow. I said to Julie, I said, the Lord said, he who trusts in the Lord will not be disappointed. I have trust in the Lord, and I'm very disappointed. Yeah. It's kind of it's the reality. Yeah. That's how it felt. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, why did you keep believing? I'm glad you did. And I, you know, but why do you keep believing you trusted in God and you were disappointed? And I'm sure you've been disappointed other times in your life. And God is a, a good God, but sometimes we are disappointed. And how do you reconcile those things? Well, I mean, my, that night when I said to my wife, I said, if the Lord could just explain to me why, you know, uh, this all this happened to us. Because I, I here I was thinking about this. We had children. We didn't have a job. I, I had mm-hmm. no income. I had no money in the bank. We we were, um, I mean, ironically, we our home was in Georgia. And I had gone to the, like, I'd looked up in the paper. There was no online in those days. I'd call or something and find out what it cost to rent a U-Haul at uh-huh. to go back to Georgia. It was yeah. like, $380. We didn't have $380. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know how to even get out of yeah. my apartment and go some, back home. I, I couldn't get home. Wow. <laughs> I was just like stuck in yeah. Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> and terrible. So, I know. And, the Lord, and Julie said to me that night, she said, the Lord doesn't owe us an explanation. You know, mm-hmm. we're his servants. Mm-hmm. Let's just keep following him. And I, uh, I never forget because uh, the Lord just began to show signs. For example, you know, we just, okay, Lord, we're going to trust you. We have no idea what's going on. We're part of this Bible study, and um, we they took up a collection for us, and they gave us a, the amount of money we needed to get, you know, down to Georgia, and, and the DS pointed me to a church, you know, things all unfolded, you know. And um, yeah, all things worked out great. But so I, we've had a lot of things like that over the years, and we just, we just, now our faith is to the point where I just know that the Lord is, in the long run, doesn't disappoint you. That, you know, yeah. His uh, disappoint. Our disappointment is his appointment. You just have to believe that, even the struggles. But I never believe. That's why I think the Psalms are so meaningful to us. That mm. the Psalms are very earthy. They, they teach you to be honest before God. Yes. Uh, be okay to own the. Don't, you don't have to put a smiley face on things. Say, Lord, I'm really disappointed here. This is yes. not right. I love that. Uh, you know, we've had painful chapters at Asbury as well. But through it all, I look back and say, you know, God's been faithful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has, and he, he is. You mentioned Julie several times. How did you meet, if I could ask? Uh, we met uh, the way everyone should meet, in seminary. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you. 
Yeah, we did. We uh, we uh, in those days, uh, I was at Gordon Conwell. There were very few women in seminary in those days, uh-huh. and so it was a very small population of, of women. And uh, of course, school starts in the fall, like it is now. And so Julie came in January, in, mm-hmm. in the middle of the year. So uh, when she arrived, everyone you know noticed her, you know. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, I, if I had a, a uh, early on, I just I had a class. We had a class together, and I, when it was a huge class. I didn't notice her in the class because like a hundred and some odd other people, uh, like a J term class, mm-hmm. and so. Like the second or third day of the class, there was a uh, a field trip to go out to Salem, Massachusetts, which uh, ironically is famous in mission circles. That's where the first missionaries were sent out from America, Adam uh, Judson. So we went to that that church where he was commissioned as part of the mm-hmm. field trip. So we're there on I was there on the front row of the church when the professor said, uh, "Julie, uh, would you please come forward and play the piano? We're going to uh-huh. sing a hymn." So uh-huh. I had never even seen her. So she sat down. My first sight of seeing Julie was uh-huh. playing the piano. Oh, wow. And if you ever seen Julie play the piano, mm-hmm. you, it's, it's love at first sight. <laughs> <laughs> so I noticed her. And so the next day or so, uh, I introduced myself to her. And then um, and, and my prayer group had a, uh, like, a, we all went to, like, we did, like, a Friday night event. And we would do things together. And so I invited her to a, a, a joint event. And that started our yeah, and it just the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You talked about being a builder earlier, like in an organization and things like that. But you also do woodworking, right? So you build with your hands as well as in an organization. That's right. That's right. That's my personality type. So you like <laughs> raw materials into finished materials. Right. So I do. I, I enjoy uh, when I first came to to uh, the seminary. It was funny because I, I had all kinds of woodworking tools and construction tools, and I um, I thought, I, don't, I just don't need those being present Asbury, so I just I, I sold them or gave them away, you know. Oh, wow. I came here with nothing like that because yeah. I thought I don't have time for it or whatever. So I got here, and very early on I noticed that there was a big upstairs attic at Rose Hill above the kitchen. They built a kitchen in, in 2001 onto the seminary's house, and a big open attic area that just was dying to be finished off. Uh-huh. You know? So I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> I started buying stuff and getting new tools and, and finishing that off. And then I, I put a built a workshop in the basement of Rose Hill. And then, there's, I don't know if you know, but behind Rose Hill, there was a, there was some, uh, was a garage for cars. And then there's a like a little store. It was like a storage room. Oh, yeah. That used to be, uh, I think in years ago, there was like a helpers that lived back there. I got in there and, you know, took out the back wall, put a big window in there to see out those pastures and made it, and there's a bathroom in there, and, a, you know, it's a nice office. So a lot of times, like, like as you know, I preach here a lot. I've never written a sermon on this campus in my 10 years here. Really? Never. Because there's no way I can write a sermon on this oh, campus. Oh, yeah, everybody's, yeah. Because my job is just, my, my, my office isn't too much of a, uh, you know, hub of activity. So I go over there, particularly on Fridays, and I, um, I do hmm. all my writing of sermons and, other than I need to just focus on projects uh, in that office mm-hmm. at Rose Hill. Mm-hmm. And so I did that yeah. innovation work. So I enjoy that kind of thing because, again, it's taking something and improving it. Yeah. It's all part of the same thing. And yeah. that when I was at, um, in that three-year program I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. with President, the whole thing was designed around an architectural theme. Wow, that is and perfect. And they were comparing building seminaries to, like, construction and all. Oh, and wow. we actually read books, not on theological education, but on architecture. 
That is right up your and alley. So there was one book called The Timeless Way of Building. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's apparently a famous book in the architectural world, which I read, which was a transformative book for me. Because mm-hmm. it teaches you how to walk into any house or any building and look around and notice what's beautiful about it and mm-hmm. what really needs a second look. Wow. And they've determined that there's certain patterns in housing and all that that are true all over the world. Why do people respond to certain spaces? What do other spaces people avoid? And so this book lays out kind of a theory of all that. Interesting. And they applied it to how you go into a seminary and look around and say, well, this is working. This needs, you know, mm-hmm. love. This mm-hmm. is a problem. Mm-hmm. And so part of my life as a president is finding problems and solving them, creating yeah. strategies to improve it. Yeah. So it's really a... Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Are you working on anything right now? I am. I, we have this uh, cabin, you know, so I told yes. you down there. So one of the many problems it had, it had no screens uh, in any of the windows. Oh, that's a huge problem. <laughs> that's a huge problem, right? <laughs> so I decided rather than buy screens or whatever, I would make all the screens for it. So just recently wow. I finished making screens for the whole house. That's incredible. How did you learn how to do this? Well, my, it's interesting. My dad... Um, was a printer, so he, we we all grew up working with our hands, so we're good with hand type things. Mm-hmm. I just mentioned our our brains or whatever. Mm-hmm. But my dad um, had a, a doctor friend of his who had money to invest, but didn't want to get into real estate because he didn't want the hassle like renters and fixing mm-hmm. things and all that. Mm-hmm. So my dad went into partnership with this dentist, and the dentist would provide the money, and we would mm-hmm. do all the grunt work, the labor, the okay. keeping track of ten, the tenants. And all the repair work. So you would not believe. Um, they end up mentioned holding quite a few homes. And so, you know, once we moved out, you know, sheetrock destroyed, you know, plumbing mm-hmm. bad. And so on Saturday morning, we had a family tradition. We got up on Saturday morning. We all ate together as a family out at a restaurant called Hickory House in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so we got up early in the morning, went out, and we had a great breakfast together. As a family, and then uh, we would the boys. There's three boys. We would go and take, my dad would take us to one of these houses to work on the wow. houses. So I had to learn how to do plumbing, electrical, wow. sheetrock, you name it. So you were like, have you heard of the show Fixer Upper? With yeah, Tip and, yeah, yeah, you were like Fixer yeah. Upper before Fixer Upper. That's right. That's right. So I thank over over many years doing that. I learned to um, wow. gain those skills, yeah. so I can fix things. That's awesome. I love that. I would love to be able to know how to do things. I like working with my hands too. My dad was a mechanic, so I think it yeah, it kind of gift. got handed down. But I don't. I haven't honed any of the skills to be able to do it. But those are the things I like to do. Well, the funny my father is now with the Lord, but my mother is in her nineties, still lives in the same house where we grew up, mm-hmm. and so she has a list of things she you know keeps that. Uh, that have to be fixed. Mm-hmm. So just give you a recent, this, this past month, um, I went to Onion Springs to preach for 10 days. Mm-hmm. So it passes through Atlanta. So my mother says to me before I uh, left Atlanta, says, bring your plumbing supplies. <laughs> so she had a toilet upstairs that was uh, the whole, the whole like um, thing that refills the tank had split open. It was oh. spring water everywhere and all mm-hmm. she was a disaster. Mm-hmm. So I brought all my little plumbing stuff down there, took out all of her bad stuff, put in new stuff, and then uh, put it all together again on the way down to Indian oh, Springs. Oh, wow. So I still have my uh, house calls <laughs> my dear mother. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and what a gift to still have her and to be able to do yeah, great for her. Yeah. yeah, and she's very active, and it's a blessing to have my mother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So as we wrap up our podcast, we have three questions that we ask everybody on who comes on the podcast. And since it's called the Thrive Podcast, what is a practice, it can be spiritual or otherwise, that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Yeah, I, whenever I ask that question, I, I would say the number one thing in, in my life that's helped me to thrive, especially since uh, 2012, is daily psalm singing. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I get up every morning, we spend time singing the psalms, and it's been a really a great spiritual practice for us, and mm-hmm. we highly recommend it. Yeah, uh, It's a practice that's unknown to many people. They find it unusual. But to have uh, we, all the psalms are now in you know, metrical form, which allows them to be sung to hymn tunes or mm-hmm. even choruses that are done with regular mm-hmm. meter. And so we, we do that. And, it's, mm-hmm. and, and God's used that in our lives. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I know as president, you're very busy. So are you reading any books right now? And if so, what are you reading? I read a lot of books uh, because uh, I love to read and I have to read for my job. So mm-hmm. I, I try to read different kinds of books. You know, I, I, for example, right now I'm uh, ben Witherton has put a new book out on uh, biblical theology, mm-hmm. uh, looking at the kind of the what ties all the scriptures together. Um, I, I, as you know, uh, last year I did a, a series in the book of Acts, mm-hmm. so I've read a lot in Craig Keener's commentaries on mm-hmm. Acts. Right now, mm-hmm. I'm preparing a series on the on the means of grace. Mm-hmm. So I've reread all that Wesley has written on the means of grace in his sermons. I also like to read things that are new to me, like things I wouldn't normally read that I need to read. So I, this past weekend, for example, I read. The book um, "Listening to Sexual Minorities" by mm-hmm. Steve Stratton. It's mm-hmm. edited book of the research. It basically asks college students that are struggling with their sexuality or their gender, mm-hmm. like what's going on in their mind, how they think about that in relationship to the Bible, to faith, and a lot of these are, are really uh, you know deeply committed Christians who are trying to reconcile some challenges they have in their mm-hmm. life. And so that's mm-hmm. a world that I need to know more about. Mm-hmm. So I read a book on that this mm-hmm. weekend. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly reading um, things. That helped me yeah. make good decisions for the seminary. It's yeah. part of it. So, and you're writing a book right now. I'm writing a book on the theology of the body right mm-hmm. now for Zondervan and for Seedbed. So it's a book that basically one of the problems I think we have as a culture now is that we fixated uh, on uh, particularly same-sex marriage and those type of issues, homosexuality, as if this is an isolated problem rather than a large, large problem dealing with how Christians view the body. Mm-hmm. It goes in everything like, you know, adultery, fornication, uh, a huge percentage of young people today. I think it's 90 percent of young adults will now have sex prior to marriage. Mm-hmm. You have huge problems with adultery. About 25 percent of couples actually have had adulterous relationships. Mm-hmm. The pornography use among young mm-hmm. people is extremely, among a lot of people, extremely high. And so it's a whole landscape of brokenness that it has mm-hmm. all kinds of implications. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 uh, first person killing and gaming uh, things where you actively uh, kill people in gaming video games and so forth. It's a lot of stuff. It's it's um, you know, doctor assisted suicide. I mean, I could go on and on. Transhumanism. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no end to all of these things, and it's yeah. really. I think the church has felt like we're fighting 15 battles rather than no, we're actually it's fighting. It's one thing. It's our theology of the body. We've mm-hmm. not developed it well. Mm-hmm. We're having a lot of challenges to it. And so part of my uh, goal in this book is try to 
look at some of the underlying theological issues that mm-hmm. give rise to these things yeah. so that Christians won't be just simply saying that we're against this, we're against this, we're against this. Mm-hmm. What is the vision? What are we for? Yeah. What is the grand vision of wholeness that is going to make us make human, human flourishing? Yeah. So I believe that the gospel, after all is said and done, the gospel is in some ways um, the greatest self-interest because it does help us flourish. God, yeah. God made us, designed us. And we don't need to view it as something we're at war against. And so mm-hmm. this is the book is trying to accomplish some of that. I love that because a lot of that, I know growing up, n- very little of that got talked about, you know, like how, yeah. you know, and that was just pretty normal. So I think it's, and I think that's giving rise to some of the issues that we have today because we don't have a well-grounded theology of our bodies and sexuality and things like that. Yeah. When do you expect your book to come out? That's a good question. Uh, probably it'll come out sometime in 2020. Okay. Exactly when, I don't know, but okay. sometime in 2020. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to if that I have then. more time, I can finish it up and get, <laughs> get it into their, right. their inbox rather than my inbox. Right. Um, I know writing is a joy when it's done, not maybe the process is sometimes you're like, oh, is it ever going to happen? But yeah. So yeah. we'll look forward to 2020 then. Um, Thank you. Um, what is one thing that you want to do or a place you want to visit that's still on your bucket list? That's a great question. Um, believe it or not, I, I would really like to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Really? Yeah. 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 Have you ever done anything like that before? Well, I've done a lot of hiking and climbing over the years. Uh, and I'm, I'm now, I'm turning 60 just next week. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like... Um, well, happy early birthday. Few, yeah. It's definitely 24th. It's actually next month, I mean. Uh, but I... Um, so I'm not sure of my physical capabilities. I have to check in to see if it's possible. But my wife and I, we enjoy hiking. If we have weekends free, we go hiking. I, I'm, I hike a lot. I, enjoy I didn't know that. Yeah, we love hiking. Yeah, we our vacation is, uh, you know, our idea of a vacation is not to go to like a Marriott and sit uh-huh. by a pool. Uh-huh. That's not our, our vacation is to go to the mountains and hike. And oh, uh, we that. love hiking and camping and all that. So That's anyway, great. Yeah. So um, Mount Kilimanjaro, if you've ever seen it, um, it's like no other mountain in the world because unlike like if you go to Mount Everest or some of these big mountains, K2, they're in the middle of a range of mountains. And so you, if you look at Mount Everest, you don't really see it. Mm-hmm. You just see the top. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's above the other ones, but you don't mm-hmm. really see Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Mount Kilimanjaro is on the plain. Right? It separates Kenya and Tanzania. Uh-huh. So you have this whole Serengeti plain, and there's this mountain that's just sitting there. It just like absolutely takes your breath away, yeah. the sheer size of it. And you see it from top to bottom. It's very rare to have that experience. Yeah. And our daughter lives in Tanzania. Okay. So we go there every year or so. Every year or two, we get to go visit her. So I was there in this November. So I've seen the mountain several times. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, you know, I'd like to climb that mountain. Yeah. Well, Isn't you great? should. So it could be like what you do for your birthday. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so I um, hope that someday I'll... I better do it in the next five or six years. Or <laughs> well, I hope you get the opportunity to do that. Thank you. Um, what are some of the places that you've hiked that you've really enjoyed? Well, we've been, um, you know, we've been, I've hiked the Appalachian Trail, a big portions of that, mm-hmm. and all in Georgia, North Carolina. I've hiked a lot of Appalachian Trail up in, up in New England. Uh, we've, I've hiked, I've done a lot of hiking in the swamps, and I have a big interest in the swamps, too. I've, I've, really? Uh, yeah. So I, I, when I hear the word swamp, I think of like snakes and alligators. Yeah, is it is true. it it's is true. it scary? Like no, I mean they they have like these uh, uh, Okefenokee Swamp has um, these trails through the swamps. And so when I was a young person, I ordered like all of the 
maps, like the geographical maps of all of the swamps, and I mm-hmm. took them this huge, big, you know, take them all together, mm-hmm. and I decided to create a uh, like a like a bucket list of of going through all the swamps. Like mm-hmm. there's all these islands in the swamps, mm-hmm. so there's New Island, there's Bugaboo Islands, all these islands. So mm-hmm. I've hiked through all those swamp islands. Wow! And so I go down to Fargo. There's now at Stephen C. Foster State Park. And you can get permits to go in there and spend time in the swamps hiking and, and, and canoeing. So you oh, canoe. that sounds fun, yeah. You canoe from island to island. And there's one island called Billy's Island where an entire family lived. And they uh, there was a just a whole kind of history of this family that lived there. And so I went to where they live, and I, I dug up and found, like, you know, some remains, like some artifacts and all. Wow. There was, like, a, a train that used to go there to, to, to mine the cypress trees and all that. So there's a... Little take a train history there, so I, I love things like that. And we've mm-hmm. been out, of course, west to to uh, Yosemite Park, mm-hmm. of course, and we hiked yeah. a lot out there. And yeah, just I was a Boy Scout, so I went to Philmont Scout Ranch. Okay, and hiked the Tooth of Time. All right, I, I made the, mis- the terrible mistake. Of, I was so overzealous on hiking that we were we got to the Tooth of Time, which is this massive rock formation in New Mexico, and uh, I was so eager. I convinced our troop to. Um, to do it at the end of the day, we wait till next, that next morning to <laughs> uh-huh, it fresh. Uh-huh. And so we all agreed, and so we tried to cross the Tooth of Time uh, in the evening, and a huge lightning storm broke out. Oh, my goodness. I mean, massive, I mean, like, thunderous bolts of lightning hitting I am terrified all of lightning. Us. <laughs> and we literally hid under the rocks, under pouring down <laughs> rain with thunder just... <laughs> and I, I realized I'm about to die. This is the end of my life. <laughs> And so I've had a lot of amazing moments hiking. Yes, it sounds like it. We weren't one of a few. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's great being in Kentucky because, you know, our, our, our son lives here. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he and his wife are also big hikers. So we'll go oh, to George great. a lot. And to be right here in Kentucky and be so close yeah. to uh, in the Palisades. Yeah, there's some beautiful some places to hike. Some hikes yeah. around here, yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Dr. Tennant. I really enjoyed our conversation and appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thanks, Heidi. Anytime. Well, thank you. y'all thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with dr Tennant. just so grateful for his time and for his leadership at asbury seminary and just really appreciate the conversation today and getting to just get to know a little bit more about him so i don't know about y'all but i really enjoyed it if you like what you heard we hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast we'll be releasing new podcast episodes every other week but there may be some surprise episodes along the way so you'll want to be sure to subscribe to get those when they drop in our next episode reverend jessica legrone dean of chapel at asbury seminary joins us to talk about her calling community and my favorite the enneagram so be sure to subscribe and listen to that when it drops and as always you can follow us on facebook twitter and instagram at at asbury seminary and we'll link all that in the show notes too so have a great day y'all and go do something that helps you thrive